0: You're listening to a podcast from St. Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Well, it would be really helpful to have your Bibles or your Bible apps open at Jeremiah chapter 25 as we go through this this morning. There's an outline of the sermon on the back of the new sheet and there's translation points as well. There's also space for writing notes, um, if that's helpful for you. Let's begin with prayer. Almighty Father, as you have given us your word, give us now your spirit that we may understand and live the things which we hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, we're at the midpoint of Jeremiah's ministry as the vision of the boiling pot tilting from the north we heard back at Jeremiah's call in our first week materializes and is shared with God's people. The year is 605 BC this year would change the course of history as human history and biblical history intersect And Jeremiah delivers this ominous prophecy to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. We begin in verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The Babylonian army... Under the command of Nebuchadnezzar, defeated Egypt during the pivotal battle of Carchemish. This victory proved to be a turning point in the politics of the region, enabling the Babylonians to expand its influence and solidify its dominance in the region, while halting Egypt's ambition for territorial expansion, restricting them to their traditional boundaries. Remember last week, the false prophets were telling the people, you will have peace, no harm will come to you. Now, there was something to see. We know that shortly after this important victory, Nebuchadnezzar's father died. We read in 2 Kings, chapter 24. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, And Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But then he turned against Nebuchadnezzar and rebelled. Nebuchadnezzar was concerned with Judah because of its strategic position in relation to the other powerful empires of Egypt and Assyria. This campaign of Nebuchadnezzar was interrupted suddenly when he heard of his father's death. So he raced back to Babylon to secure his succession to the throne. Apparently, he traveled about 500 miles in just two weeks. Remarkable speed for that day. Nebuchadnezzar only had time to take a few choice captives, which probably included Daniel, a few treasures, and a promise of submission from Jehoiakim. But... When Nebuchadnezzar had to make his hurried return to Babylon, Jehoiakim took advantage of his absence and rebelled against him. And so this prophecy that we hear today may have been delivered between these two significant international events. The scene was almost set. God had been patient. Jeremiah had warned the people repeatedly. Judgment was now imminent. But in the darkness of rebellion and exile, we see God's grace shine through. So Jeremiah, the prophet, spoke to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem. Jeremiah begins with a striking description of God's patience. He said, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, The word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. Again and again, Jeremiah has spoken God's message to them. And even though they hadn't listened, God hadn't acted yet, for God was patient. Our minds go back to Jeremiah's first vision, the almond branch, The almond tree is the first to flower, but one of the last to fruit. This was an indication that Jeremiah's prophecies would take time to be fulfilled. And the reason is that God is patient. Now, God's patience wasn't just limited to the 23 years of Jeremiah's ministry. God had demonstrated his patience throughout all of Israel's history. The opening verses set the stage by recounting the years of God's patience, sending prophets to his people persistently. So Jeremiah continued, And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention. God continued to send his messengers to bring his people back to him. And even when Israel rejected one messenger, God would send them another. We are reminded of this parable of Jesus. In fact, we heard this parable in our first week. It is a parable of the tenants. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenant to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. God patiently sent his servants, his prophets, to the Israelites, even though his prophets were ignored beaten, and even killed. Even Jeremiah suffered the same treatment. The King James Version describes verse 4 a little bit differently. God rising early and sending his prophets to his people. This imagery of the early morning rising of the prophets reflects God's unwavering commitment to reach his beloved but wayward children. The people of Judah had persistently strayed from God, engaging in idolatry and forsaking the covenant. Despite their unfaithfulness, God's patience endured. The Lord, in his mercy, dispatched prophets to warn, guide, and call his people back to righteousness. Jeremiah then recounts the message that the prophets were given to proclaim. Now the people were stubborn in their disobedience and so the message was pretty much the same each and every time. The prophet said, turn now each of you from your evil ways and your evil practices and you can stay in the land the Lord gave to you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. God's prophets acted as channels of God's enduring patience, standing as living reminders of his desire for reconciliation. Through their words, God sought to communicate not only the seriousness of the people's sins, but also the depth of his love and his longing for their return. God's patience is really an expression of his mercy and kindness, an expression of his love. God remains patiently faithful even when his people turn away from him. Patience is not mere tolerance, but a deliberate act of love. God's enduring patience extends an invitation for repentance and renewal. It calls us to return to him, acknowledging our waywardness and embracing the path of righteousness. And as we remember that God is patient with us, we need to remember that God is equally patient with others, especially those we believe deserve God's justice. His long-suffering challenges us to perceive time as opportunity for transformation rather than an impediment to our desires or our expectations. "'But you did not listen to me,' declares the Lord." And you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves. Jeremiah now pivots towards the theme of divine judgment. The tone shifts from a patient plea to a solemn pronouncement of the consequences for persistent disobedience. Jeremiah articulates the impending judgment with typically vivid and evocative language. And we hear this in verses 8 to 10. I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, The sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. The imagery employed portrays the desolation that awaits Judah. The land will become a wasteland, and the people will serve foreign nations. The severity of God's judgment is palpable. And the consequences are portrayed as a direct result of the people's refusal to respond to God's patient calls to repentance. God's judgment is not arbitrary or capricious, rather, it's rooted in his holiness and righteousness. Jeremiah unveils a God who cannot turn a blind eye to sin, but must address it with the severity that its nature demands we see very clearly that all of this is God's plan, God's initiative, and God's action. We hear God saying, I will summon. Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant. I will bring them. I will completely destroy. I will banish. God will use the Babylonians to bring about his plan. God's people will be defeated, but not God himself. We also see how divine judgment serves a redemptive purpose it operates as a corrective force aiming not at the destruction of his people but at their transformation god's judgment echoes his call throughout the ages inviting individuals and nations to consider the consequences of their actions and turn back to the path of righteousness God's judgment is not separate from his mercy but rather intertwined with it. Even in the midst of pronounced consequences, God's overarching desire is not to abandon his people but to bring about repentance and restoration. The good news is the destruction of Judah, including Jerusalem and the temple, and the exile of his people is not the end of the story. Just as Jesus' death on the cross is not the end of his story. Jesus' death was not the ultimate failure, but the ultimate expression of God's love and grace. God's grace and mercy now emerges as a beacon of hope amid the looming shadows of judgment. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, and will make it desolate forever. I will bring on that land all the things I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands." After exile, there is the promise of restoration. Amidst the pronouncement of judgment, God declares that after 70 years, he will punish the nation that enslaved his people and the exiles will return to their land. This promise serves as a glimmer of hope, a divine assurance that judgment isn't the final word. God, in his wisdom, designates a specific period for judgment, beyond which his grace will manifest in restoration. Once again, God is the one who will make this happen. I will punish, I will bring, I have spoken, I will repay. As we see judgment and grace side by side, we see an important aspect of God's character. We see that God, even in the face of human rebellion, is committed to the restoration of his people God's grace is not passive, but an active force that seeks to redeem, reconcile, and renew. We're invited to reflect on the transformative power of grace. It extends beyond forgiveness to encompass the restoration of what was broken. The promised return from exile represents not just a geographical relocation, but a reconciliation with God and re-establishment of the covenant. And so we see this interplay of God's patience, judgment, and grace. And we're prompted to think about the dynamics of repentance. The call to repentance is not a mere acknowledgement of wrongdoing. It's not just an acknowledgement of sin, but it's an embrace Of God's gracious invitation to return repentance is a path that leads from the consequences of judgment to the embrace of God's restoring grace the good news of the gospel is that Jesus took the penalty for our sin and invites us not to return to a place but return to and remain in him This morning, I focused today on God's message for his people, the people of Judah. But there is more to this chapter. Chapter 25 concludes with the revelation that the imminent judgment of God upon Judah, Jerusalem, and then Babylon will extend to its neighbors as well. Because all nations have dishonored the Lord, all will fall before his verdict of guilty. A cup filled with wine is the central image of the remainder of this chapter. The Lord told Jeremiah, Take from my hand this cup filled to the brim with my anger and make all the nations to whom I send you drink from it. Then, beginning with Jerusalem and Judah, Jeremiah made all nations drink from the cup. No nation would go unpunished. God's sovereignty... God's rule is universal. This image of the cup helps us to grasp part of the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice for us. We recall Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest, trial and crucifixion. Going a little farther, Jesus fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus chose to drink the cup of God's righteous anger and so takes the judgment for our sins upon himself. Instead of the cup of wrath, Jesus offers us the cup of the new covenant the cup of forgiveness and life. Therefore, we don't have to live in fear of God's judgment. Jesus bore the penalty for our sin so that we might live joyfully, freely and obediently in relationship with him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for the so many prophets who have shared your message of judgment and grace. We thank you that you sent Jesus to drink the cup that was destined for us. Help us to live joyfully and freely as we draw closer to you each day in our relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a podcast from St. Barts. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.